Welcome to the latest instalment of the Classical Music Pod. Wham! Sam investigates Batman's secret musical identity. Smash! Tim holds the Anglican Church to account in a hard-hitting expose. Zoinks! It's not the name of the Ukrainian composer whose new disc of choral music we discuss. Zap! And yes, another excuse to talk about Star Trek. Choral theme in today's micro mini music quiz, Sam. First, <laughs> how has Canterbury Cathedral been making waves? Sound waves. Not sound, sound waves. News waves. News waves. Have they been dropping ponds into the news pool? Yes. You care to offer any more detail? Um, have they done something with their cathedral choir? Yeah, predictably. The cathedral is to open up its boys' choir to singers from local state schools rather than solely the nearby private school, St Edmunds. The decision comes as part of a push to attract children from a diverse range of backgrounds, quotes, and to give, quotes, families both flexibility and choice. And it also means that once the current set of scholarships have run their course, no further remuneration will be offered to choristers, private or state. Um, the headlines here are ostensibly positive, Sam, but is this good for choral diversity or bad for social mobility? Oh, nice uh, dichotomy you've mm. posed me there. I'd say it's going to be good for those schools where kids will go into the cathedral, they'll get this little bit of extra music tuition, I think, through mm-hmm. the sort of not scholarship, scholarship that they're getting. Mm. And then they'll go back to those schools and they'll enrich the whole musical community there rather than being skimmed off the top yep. and taken out. Yep, yep. But uh, if you remember our episode with David Lammy, mm. that opportunity to be a chorister and go to a really well-funded, well-resourced, uh, brilliant school mm. um, where he went to Peterborough, didn't he? He got it's lifted Peterborough. out of Tottenham and after Peterborough. Mm. That changed his stars. That's a huge moment. And kids aren't going to get that same opportunity the crux of that problem really isn't the cathedrals. It's that there's a well-known imbalance between the opportunities yeah. that you get at a private school and the ones yeah. that you get at a local state school, especially, uh, you know, in somewhere like Tottenham, there's a chance that you're not going to encounter the same kind of cultural richness that you would in a cathedral. Yeah, and vice versa, I'd say. Yeah, cultural richness is probably the wrong term, isn't it? It's mm. um, Maybe it's more to do with uh, the spending per pupil. You know, we've all seen those graphs, yeah, particularly since exactly. 2010. If you're at a state school, the amount of government money or private money that is going into your education is so much lower yeah, exactly. if you're at a state school than if you're at a private school. And that's not the fault of a cathedral. No, indeed. So funnily enough, I was, well, the cynic in me wondered whether the decision was 
a cost-cutting exercise for yeah, the cathedral, right? Much. But when I got in touch with them, I was told fervently that is not the case. <laughs> uh, they will be investing more in the choir over the next two years in order to ensure its future. And then over a longer period, any money saved is going to be invested back into the choir's outreach work and longer term plans for community music. And then as for the choristers themselves, as you say, yeah, they won't have access to a fancy school, but the cathedral is going to fund music and instrumental lessons and cover travel expenses. So it seems to be coming from a genuinely good place. Yeah, it's also worth highlighting their efforts regarding gender parity, which is something we've discussed before. From September... The boys' choir is to reduce its weekly services from five to three, thus matching the number currently sung by the girls' choir, which, incidentally, is already open to children from multiple schools. So there we go. In other choral news, what has the Self-Isolation Choir Company been doing to make a ruckus? Uh, is this the most expensive choral workshop in the world? That's the one, yeah. Uh, the company's... New, sorry, I'm just eating cashews. The mm. company's new Come and Sing venture offers enthusiastic amateurs the chance to sing Spem in Allium alongside professional choir Tenebrae for a mere £595. <whistles> Naturally, this has caused uproar, prompting Deputy Arts Editor of the Times, Neil Fisher, to post a meme of Tenebrae founder conductor Nigel Short resting on a pile of gold bullion. <laughs> but Sam, is money the real issue here? It's another philosophical question. I know. How much is a day singing next to Tenebrae worth? And maybe, I think the mm. uproar seems to have come from people who are maybe singing in these kind of things and not getting paid anywhere near £595. Yeah. Or people who are maybe a little bit further away and think that this might be used as a kind of exclusive semi-audition opportunity. Mm. And I don't think it will be either of those things. Really, it will be a way of baiting money out of rich Americans mm. yeah. who love to support chor English choral music, English choral groups. British, yeah, and we wow. rely on them as a choral industry. Yeah, And often these things are called patron events or, you know, join our friends, golden mega circle, mm. and you can come to a rehearsal and stand alongside and sing. And... Uh, that's really important part of the infrastructure. I think what's weird is that this seems to have gone from directly supporting those groups to a sort of monetized version of this. So the money will not go to supporting Tenebrae. Mm. It won't be part of, you know, the 16's funding raising no. pilgrimage. It will go to a separate company. Yeah, I, guess, I think I that's think... what leads, leaves the bad taste for, for some. Yeah, it's, it looks like, well, Companies House lists the director as one... Mark Strachan of Sherborne, Dorset. Mm. So, lucky Mark. Lucky Mark. Before we move on to your bat-tastic analysis, Sam, I'd like to pay a quick tribute to US film and TV composer Gerald Fried, who died early this month, aged 95. Mm. Fried scored the first four Stanley Kubrick films after meeting the director on a Bronx baseball field and telling him, <laughs> not entirely truthfully, that he had loads of film scoring experience. <laughs> Apparently he spent the next three months going to 20 movies a day, um, I quote, to learn what to do. <laughs> what a um, great blag. I know. <laughs> it's fab. But exactly, it's a, I'm a true believer in the say yes to anything philosophy, so... yeah. 
yeah, good to see somebody else actually making a success of that. But Star Trek fans like us will know Fried as one of the composers on the original series. Mm. His iconic Ritual, Ancient Battle, Second Kroika theme, written to accompany Kirk and Spock's Fight to the Death in Season 2's opener, A Mock Time, was reused for 18 other Star Trek episodes, apparently, and quoted in countless TV shows down the years. It's a classic of the genre, and he will be missed. Mm. Fried is survived by his wife, four of his children, six grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. Well, let me just uh, tell a side story. I started to get uh, royalty checks from The Simpsons. I didn't write any music for The Simpsons. What they did was that uh, when Bart Simpson would get angry and cross the living room or something like that, they quoted the music from a muck time. Oh, did you know that? <laughs> I didn't know. Tim, Hans Zimmer is Batman. What? Hans Zimmer is Batman. No Oscars nomination this year for 2021's best score winner, Hans Zimmer. Nothing for Big Z, who won for June last year. Mm. Hans is empty-handed this time round. In fact, his only other win was for the score to The Lion King in 1995. This despite him being notoriously prolific. He's like a composer built from the genetic material of Eric Harland and Pablo Picasso, who's just seen what Genghis Khan's been up to and is feeling competitive. Yes, Zimmer keeps his hands in. <laughs> With over 150 credits on internet movie database IMDb. Crikey, and... And yet today, I reckon I can surprise you with one of his underrated scores, Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. Batman movies? We'll see, Robin. Gadzooks! We've been living through a golden age of Batman. Since 1989, we've had six different Batmen, Keaton, Kilmer, Clooney, Bale, Affleck and Pattinson. And yet despite this, they're still letting Harrison Ford play Indiana Jones Jr. It's the years, it's the mileage. Prior to our current bat-rich age, Neil Hefty and his orchestra created the iconic Adam West bat theme. And in the early part of the modern wane-clogged epoch, we were also rich in bat film themes. In 1989, for Michael Keaton's controversially chinless Batman, Danny Elfman composed this foreboding horn theme. He says he had the original idea whilst in an aeroplane toilet. I say he had the unoriginal idea when he heard the first line of Nat King Cole's Let's Face the Music and Dance. There may be trouble ahead. Indeed. A personal favourite Bat theme is 1993's animated Batman movie theme, composed by the groundbreaking female figure of Shirley Walker, a really unsung talent with top musical chops. By 1995, Val Kilmer had donned the cape for Batman Forever, a film defined by the sight of Jim Carrey's testicles clearly visible through his Green Riddler onesie. Elliot Goldenthal's ominous, arpeggiac theme provides the musical Bat-dentity. 
There were then a few Bat movies with celebrity cameos coming out of their ears, and George Clooney famously wore a Bat suit with nipples on. But eventually, in 2005, Christopher Nolan gets the keys to the Bat Kingdom for Batman Begins. And we're all eagerly anticipating a killer hands him a bat theme to project across the bat sky before the world's greatest weight oscillator, Christian Bale, goes into bat battle. And what do we get? I can actually play it for you. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not too challenging. Here's the entirety of the Zimmer bat theme. Is that it? That's it. It feels a tad brief. Agreed. Is this how he treats all the important characters across the trilogy? I think so. In part two, The Dark Knight, Heath Ledger's Colgate Convention Joker is identified by this sort of electrical hum tone. Interference for a disruptive force. Very good. And Tom Hardy's gorilla-like bane in the third Batstormant, Dark Knight Rises, is accompanied by this primeval, pitchless pulsing. Grand themes, these are not. No, and a very thoughtful scholar called Nicholas Rayland calls this move from a more traditional harmonic and thematic score to a soundtrack based on texture and timbre, rhythm and style, cultural classicism. Really does sound like the title of the show you'd like to write about why the music choices at Posh Tory's funerals is always so good. Why do they like Brahms too? It's not fair. But back on track to tracks about bats. Cultural classicism is a move many of us will have noticed and enjoyed, and there's no doubting Hans is at the forefront of that movement. For me, the peak of this is the final cue in Terence Malick's The Thin Red Line. Hans creates a nine-minute arc of tension building out of pedals, a ticking clock, and repeated harmonic sequences decorated by descending scales. It could be about anything that is getting increasingly tense. So much so that it's been used in countless movie trailers, right? It's now known as the forbidden cue because it's been used so much. Have a listen, listeners. Other than being, I've got to do stuff momentously music, I think it's almost about nothing and everything all at once. If you don't know, see if you can tell what's happening in the drama or even the setting of the film. Did you guess World War II American soldiers invading Pacific Islands? If so, give yourself a pat on the back. If not, I think we can all be excused. But that's the typical criticism of the cultural classicism trend, right? That the music is kind of library, generic stock stuff, not woven around the drama specifically. It is indeed. And I think bad cultural classicism scores don't get out of that copy and paste kind of gear. But a good score, a bat score of bat cultural bat classicism... That might be interesting to hear. Holy leitmotivic development, Batman. What does Hans do with his ominous minor third? Well, what I suggest is that we do a highly compressed synopsis of the Nolan trilogy with bat thematic development woven in. Buckle up your utility belts. Part one of the trilogy, Batman Begins. The classic Bruce Wayne origin story with a few twists. Parents killed, falls down well full of bats. He knows fear and it sounds like this. To clean up the city, Wayne realises he must become a symbol, more than a man. He tells his butler, played by a late-in-life, linen-suited Michael Caine. I'm flesh and blood, I can be ignored, I can be destroyed, but as a symbol I can be incorruptible. 
This symbol is, of course, the Batman, who, when he first appears, is wreathed in a shimmer of musical light. The minor third, D to F, has been transposed to a G to B flat, higher, and now over an E flat, so that the motif forms the top part of a major chord. It sounds like Wagner's Rheingold, and we all get the feels. Over the course of the film, he absorbs and accepts his fear. He becomes the bat. And we get a kick-ass version of the motif. Our D to F is back over a D minor to B flat major chord progression. He's gone from darkness to light. Or at least darkness full of fear to being the fear in the darkness. He decides, I'm Batman. Batman Trilogy Part 2 the Dark Knight, or how I process the atrocities committed in the name of the War on Terror. If we do act, we should do so with a clear conscience and a strong heart. The Joker turns up and creates situations of bat ambiguity. What is the right course of action? Is torture justified? Should Morgan Freeman help Batman hack everyone's phones to help find a baddie? Best put that D to F motif over a slide from D minor to D flat major. Sounds confusing, because... We're confused. Bat 2 ends with the death of Gotham's White Knight, Attorney General Harvey Dent. Played by Aaron Eckhart, back when he still did good movies. After Dent is driven mad by the Joker and kills some folks, Batman takes the blame so that the myth of Gotham's White Knight can be preserved. People need someone good to believe in. The Bat can't be that, but he can help Dent's reputation survive. Rather than the heroic D minor to B flat major, that rounded out the first film as Batman adopted his heroic identity, now we get D to F over D minor to B flat minor. He's absorbed the bad, and it's made his second chord all sad. Part 3, Batman The Dark Knight Rises, or, oh yeah, Anne Hathaway is in it for five minutes. Opening third, bad guy Bane rocks up. Bruce is all, will I bat again or won't I bat again? Very much the England cricket team enforcing the follow-on. Ahoy, Bazball, am I right? Batball, more like. Anyway, his undecidedness gets the D minor to D flat major slidey underscore to show that he's having a conundrum again. Bruce Wayne eventually decides to come back to bat again. Tom Hardy, wearing three-inch heels, snaps the bat's back in half and drops him in a pit. Batman rebuilds his back and attempts to use a rope to climb out of the pit, but he keeps failing. Only after having some light therapy with a fellow inmate and accepting he must climb without the rope and absorb the fear of falling can he climb out. If Batman's becoming the fear thing, he's getting the cool version of the theme, the D minor to the B flat major. Also littered throughout the film, particularly when Joseph Gordon-Levitt turns up to play young disenchanted cop John Robin Blake, we get this cool, lightly Dorian mode flavoured hope or continuation motif. Batman returns, sets fire to a big bat symbol to tell everyone he's back to kick ass. We all high-five in the cinema and then Batman defuses a nuclear bomb before explaining that Anyone could be Batman. The symbol can continue without him. It's open-ended, just like the Robin Hope theme. It's going somewhere new in terms of character and in terms of music. It's then that we realise that we can all be Batman. Synopsis finished. Despite it being such a brief Bat motif, the reharmonization of it reinforces the story. All that 
cultural classicism stuff of drum beats and electrical whirs spins around it, filling out the texture. But Hans hasn't forgotten the fundamentals. If anything, this is more like Hans just using the very essence of that tonal storytelling, stripping it back to the bare minimum. There are no frills on this Batman. Nor nipples. Are you ready for an awkward parallel? Always. As I understand it, though I'm happy to be corrected if he wants to come on the pod, Hans works a bit like Batman. Only at night and with the help of Michael Caine? Not quite. Much like a Renaissance painter, Zimmer's compositional process is a school or house of composers. Everyone's quite shadowy about talking about it, but it seems like he sets the direction, shapes the outlines, like a Leonardo sketching out the food on the Last Supper table. It might actually be someone else who then fills it in. Which helps him to be mega prolific. Hence the Genghis Khan comparison. He's approving every bar rather than necessarily writing every single semiquaver. Like many other film composers, it must be said. This is true, but Zimmer seems to be the king. Seeing his name on a film, you know it actually represents a large number of people. He's more than just a man. I'm Batman. Classical music. Eric Goldenthal's 1995 score to the motion picture Batman Forever. Gollum's theme from Howard Shaw's soundtrack to The Lord of the Rings, written between 2000 and 2004. You got to pick a pocket or two. We're bringing reviewing back. We're bringing reviewing back. Tim, what have you been listening to? Well, as we're recording on the 24th of February, exactly one year after the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, Mm. it felt appropriate to explore a disc of music by a living Ukrainian composer. To that end, I've been listening to Mik Yuleoha and the Estonian National Male Choir's January release of works by Galina Grigoyeva. Uh, the track you just heard was her setting of the Agnus Dei, Glinafax, mm. born in 1962 in what is now Russian-occupied Crimea. Galina Grigoyeva studied at conservatoires in Odessa, St. Petersburg, and Tallinn, Estonia, where she's been based since 1994. You're obsessed with Tallinn. 
I it's just a really good city. It's small. It's very accessible. Everyone's very friendly. Everyone loves singing. Everyone loves singing. Exactly. Anyway, if you'll allow me to paint with a very broad brush, the best kind. I would say there are three important strands to her musical language. First, a rootedness in Slavonic culture, folklore, and orthodox music, manifesting most obviously on this disc in her choice of texts. There's lots mm. of Russian poets and orthodox or Byzantine text. Secondly, a very loosely post-minimalist approach. So her mm-hmm. works are sort of atmospheric, approachable, with precise intervals and timbres, and a fair amount of repetition. Sounds a bit sort of wholly minimalist adjacent. Yeah, I thought you might say that, Sam, and not just because I wrote that prompt on this script. (laughs) Certainly parallels can be drawn between Grigoyeva and so-called holy minimalists, such as John Taffner and Arvo Pert, and that's unsurprising given the latter's Russian orthodoxy and general influence on Estonian composition. Mm. He's a big force there. Yeah. That and the noise that the Estonian National Male Choir makes, I'll get onto that in a bit, sort of immediately tricks your ear into expecting a certain sound world, right? Yeah, I want nice black and white photography, lots of incense Mm. and deep basses. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there's actually one track on the disc, Prayer for Choir and Cello, that for me does lean into that John Taverner sound. Some lovely playing there from Estonian National Symphony Orchestra principal cellist Theodore Sink. Hmm. But there's a third Grigoyeva strand I haven't mentioned, and that is her love of harmony, which, hmm. to put it bluntly, makes the music more immediately interesting. Yeah, you get the drones and melismatic liturgical style melodies, but also lots of scrunchy, transmuting chords. Grigoyeva herself said... My way of thinking is harmonic, not melodic. I hear a scale of tones that may consist of some seven, eight, nine notes, and this horizontal melts into a vertical. So perhaps a better touchstone would be a composer like Alfred Schnitker, whose music has uh, an intense sort of ceremonial quality redolent of his Russian orthodoxy, but Mm. who also just really likes chords. Does like chords and a bad bowl haircut, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, it's not the best. What we have on this disc is essentially a chronological snapshot of Grigoyeva's male voice choir output niche from the mid-noughties to today, opening with this piece Nox Vitae, which is a setting of five slightly gloomy poems by the Russian acmeist poet mm. Inakienti Anyunsky that are mostly preoccupied with themes of human solitude and death. Fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's really fun. 
the, <laughs> the remaining six tracks are all sacred settings. And we've got an Agnus Dei, an In Paradisum, a Byzantine depiction of Christ dying on the cross, Luke 2.29, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, mm. all of which deal with fairly existential questions too. And this highlights an interesting ambiguity to Grigoyev's music. It's often very joyful, or or if not always joyful, then well-defined. Mm. Um, in the sleeve notes, the Estonian musicologist E.V. Aryav writes that even though the narratives in Grigoyeva's music are often concerned with love, humility, and death, her musical self-expression remains paradoxically bright and vigorous. As such, it represents an expressive Russian voice in her predominantly meditative Estonian music. An example on the disc might be the final track in Paradisum, which sets a requiem mass text traditionally heard as the coffins carried to the burial site. Grigoyeva's setting starts solemnly, but once we hit the words Chorus Angelorum Te Sushipiat, May the Choir of Angels Greet You, the choir erupts into this Finlandia-like passage, and it's a powerful antidote to my cliched understanding of that darkly expressive Russian musical voice, i.e. Rachmaninoff, Prelude in C minor, whatever. It often feels to me like Requiem settings have these moments of ecstasy, mm. of just total overwhelming brightness in the sound. And uh, I'm thinking the Darufle Requiem, mm. but it's uh, maybe just a way of trying to express that transcendental mm-hmm. moment that doesn't go dark, but in, certainly in the Christian faith goes light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And she's really tapped into that, I think. And is that your favourite track on the album? Actually, my favourite track on the album is called God is the Lord, but similarly, it has these bright, vigorous moments in spades. It's essentially one big proclamation of faith mm. in the style of a Slavic church hymn, and, and Grigoyeva sets up this question-and-answer texture between this massive, bruising chorus of blokes and a folksy cello doing lots of double stops and <laughs> interesting things. I feel much better informed about Grigoryeva's music now. Thank you very much for that. What are your thoughts on the performance style of it, the performance quality of it? Mm-hmm. Well, quality, well, the headline is that it's excellent, right? Great. yeah. The choir's made up of about 50 guys. It looks to be about 50 guys, but the depths of sound they create, it could be twice that. In mm. the big, chunky moments, it's very... It's sort of almost overpowering but at the same time all the intricacies and subtleties of Grigiev's music have been brought out very successfully and that shouldn't come as a surprise right because it's, it's basically almost a cliche now to say that Estonians do choral music very well yeah. you know, after all this is the, the country of the great singing revolution and the home of some of the best contemporary groups in the world yeah it's practically their national sport isn't it mm-hmm. so 
Um, with that as the baseline, are there any criticisms, anything you would like to just sort of see more of, see less of in the future? Well, I mean, it's not so much a criticism, but as a reflection of my taste in that it's a very different style of singing to what I'm used to. Maybe that's mm. a result of the Anglican choral tradition that you and I were brought up in, but listening to the various tracks, I did every now and then pine for that laser beam sound in the top line, the mm. ping. I'm not totally convinced that a more operatic approach on top, slightly, or oh, it sounds very cruel, but slightly wobbly contralto, male contralto sound. It's not, something that i Mm. enjoy but you know maybe that's weird to be okay with wobbly bottoms but not with jiggly tops yes uh, that's very aptly put and you listen to some of those old talis scholars recordings and the fellas in particular allowed to wobble all over the place and the ladies are asked to sound uh like children you might say Mm, Uh, and i have heard people argue convincingly in the past that is bound up in a sort of marian virginal we want this immature sound on purpose but actually as a performer that's a pretty nasty thing to ask an adult woman to yeah, do yeah, for sure. their whole career so yeah i i agree with you there's that feedback loop isn't there of sort of groups like telescopes groups like um oxford Camerata or whatever when they King were so huge, King, uh and like that then influences people in this country who want to sound like that and then mm. they sound like they grow up sounding like that so then they're yeah, adults who want to, to hear expect. that sound. Yeah. Um, it's quite good to challenge yourself sometimes and listen to things that are Yeah, I agree. Different. And actually, when we were listening to this together earlier, you mentioned that possibly that's a result of language as well, right? Because the vowel sounds they're making are slightly different. Well, yeah, some of the, like, their interpretations of Latin, or mm-hmm. um, certainly if they're singing their own language, just where it is in the mouth, you're not going to get that kind of pure... Hmm. Italianate vowel necessarily you get something with just a, a hint or something yeah well yeah and i um you know if you constrict a vowel it does interesting things yeah vocally, absolutely so. so anybody interested in hearing the whole thing the album is out on Takata classics and available on all streaming platforms i put a few links in the description so happy listening and incidentally if you're interested in the wider ukrainian classical scene do go back and listen to our ukrainian special from last april sam does a uh, a sideways look at Valentin Silvestros, the messenger, and we get a few uh, real Ukrainian composers and artists to talk about meaningful. Ukrainian music, meaningful Ukrainian music that they love. So, yeah. Slava Ukraine. Slava Ukraine. Hey Sam, I've set up a coffee donation page for the podcast. What is a coffee donation page, Tim? It's like Patreon, in that it allows people to financially support creative projects they enjoy. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a coffee, if you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. 
Before we go, a very quick thank you to Mr. Anderson at Takata Classics for setting up with those audio clips. Much appreciated, Martin. Mm, thank you, Martin. And a nod to Christopher Nolan. Thank you for only making three Batman movies. Otherwise, it would have taken me too long to work through them. Yeah, but what would a Hans Zimmer done? Oh, crikey. He'd have had to come up with another chord. Probably four-note theme. Yes. Yeah. You are trashing my scene! And as always, please do share us far and wide if you enjoy what we do. Got any Batman fan friends? Pop them an email or a, a WhatsApp. You're a nice guy. You're a nice guy. But I don't f***ing cut it when you're bull****ing Around like this. If you'd like to financially support what we do, then you can go to ko-fi slash classical pod. Coffee. Coffee. And like just give us a Buy couple of quid. And then, yeah. It's nice. Seriously, man, you and me, we're done professionally. <laughs>